The following resources presented by the Counseling and Conference Services of IOM America. Welcome to A Counselor's Point of View. Hi, my name is Steve Finney and I will be your host. We welcome our online listeners this morning. The number of this particular podcast is 57. The series that we're going through right now is the financial series, Identity and Finances. This particular message that we are going to be sharing with you this morning is called The Points of Financial Freedom. And there are 10 primary points of financial freedom. And before we give you what those points are, I first want to remind our online listeners that Wherever it is that you got this podcast, if it was sent to you by a friend, you need to get back to the website. That's www.iom, M as in ministry, iomamerica.org. Move over to the online uh, drop-down menu, and then you will see the Identity Matters series. Drop down to 57. There you will find a PDF of the actual slides we are going to be teaching from this morning. And every single week we will provide for you these slides. Pastors, we encourage you to take these slides and design your own uh, sermon for Sunday. And get this message out there as far and fast as we possibly can. To get things started this morning, I want to share with you... Uh, a principle out of 1 John 2.16. I've labeled this particular slide, Impulse Buying. Here's our paragraph. The impulse, of, the impulse to buy is something most people struggle with, but few realize the bondage that accompanies these impulses. The marketplace provides many opportunities to trap us into becoming undisciplined in our shopping habits. We want, we see, we buy. Many times it can be as candy-coated as a purchase of candy itself. God wants us to have the discernment of the Holy Spirit in, in all of our purchases. The problem is as old as the garden itself. One example is when Eve purchased fruit with the price of her soul. We must reject all that appeals to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of our lives. Okay, now let's take Eve's moment. How long did Satan have to work on her to make this impulse buy. Three years. But remember he couldn't leave the tree. He wasn't roaming about on the earth yet. So was Satan appealing to something sinful in her? I mean that's what most pastors are teaching today. Satan is appealing to sin in you. And, and draws that sin forward. And you are under temptation. You fall into the sin. And blah blah blah. That's. That's basically what's being taught, and there's some truth to that. She didn't have sin, sin, so what in the world was going on here? And so what exactly was he appealing to her? What what was it? 
Exactly. It's a very common sense thing. She saw that the fruit was good to eat and pleasing, and she ate. This is a critical piece. I need to have you guys understand when it comes to identity in finances because the simple fact is it's not a sin to be tempted. It isn't. What comes out of the temptation could be sin. And the the other thing I want us to see is, is the simple reality that Satan just adds a candy coating to something that is already good. So candy coated peanuts, particularly cashews, is really good. And if you eat too many of them, all that sugar can become a very negative thing. That's, that is exactly what Satan does. He adds candy coating to something that is good. Because he has to appeal to you on a day of something that's good, not something that's bad. So eating is a normal thing, but if he could appeal to what's very normal and natural and neutral and healthy and appeal to that area and turn it into indulgence, then he's got you. But the fact that you got to eat, you got to drink, you got to you know do these things... Those are normal, natural, neutral things that he puts the candy coating on. Very key for us to understand how this impulse thing works. See, he knows that, knew that Eve's primary job was to do what with Adam? And one of the ways to do that was... Food, feeding. She was to make sure she provided food, drink, and and relational contact with him. And so for her to, Satan knew that all he had to do is take this fruit thing and just candy coat the thing. There's sin on the inside of this thing. And, you know, he just coated it so it looks so appealing to her eye, which was normal for her to want. And then he hands it to her and she takes it and she eats and bites into the sin. She swallows it. It goes into the morbidity of her body and it defiles her. She realizes that she's naked and ashamed and doesn't want to be alone in that. So she takes the fruit over to Adam and does a normal, natural, neutral thing with Adam. And that feeds him. Why would he resist her? So all this talk about trying to psychologize the relationship problems that were going on between Adam and Eve are ridiculous. His job was to take the food from her hand. Poisoned or not. So we ate and he too became naked and ashamed. Critical that we understand this. These are normal, natural, neutral things that are put in the design of God. Satan just candy coats it. He takes what is good and he takes it beyond God's bounds and it turns into sin. Okay, let's let's talk about these ten primary 
principles or points of, of freedom. The first one we need to talk about is this whole issue of dealing with swindlers. The first and foremost problem that needs to be addressed is that of recognizing and rejecting the swindler himself, and that is Satan. Satan did exactly that with Eve. He swindled her. He took something that was good and ultimately made it so that it was bad. So, no being knows the marketplace better than our enemy, of course. And he is shrewd, a shrewd businessman who uses earthly swindlers to place people in bondage, primarily those who claim to be of the kingdom of God. A swindler, as depicted in man's reality, gives very few uh, evidences uh, to the fact of his deception, that's what deception is, is that he doesn't reveal his deception the way he's deceiving you. So you think it's good. So you go, wow, that's really a good deal. I'm going to buy that. Well, anytime you do budget discount buying, there's a deception built in that on purpose. Because if they can get you to spend... If the item normally is $100 and they get you to spend $50 and you look at that and go, wow, what a deal. I'll never see a deal like this, you know, for, for months or years. And you buy it. Well, you just spent $50 you don't necessarily have. And you do that over and over and over and over and it creates the swindler system. You with me? Okay, his or her technique is to get us to focus on the business aspect or profits of our demise. But God wants us to focus our, on the warning signs of deception. And if we do this, of course, we'll find a way to reveal the way of deliverance from such tricks of the trade. It works every day, all day long. Okay, so now if I said to him, boy, you're, you're, you're quite a swindler. He wouldn't agree with me. He's doing his job. He's following his training. He needs to make a living. He lives off commissioning. He needs to get food on his table. You see the deception behind the training to do the swindling when someone walks into a store? Why do they spend, like for example, one of the larger department store companies in the world spent over a billion dollars in advertisements alone? Why, why do that? Why do the commercials during the Super Bowl that cost God only knows how much per 30 seconds. Why spend all this money on these ads that you say, well, they don't affect me? Because they, they work. This works. And Satan knows it. Without advertisement, you would be frugal. With advertisement, you lose your frugalness. Principle point of freedom number two, Best Buy. A significant part of financial freedom is getting the best buy. The getting the best buy is not always justifiable to God. Getting a godly good buy requires taking time and effort to do research. 
That means walking away from the purchases that do not measure up to the predetermined standards of God. It means knowing exactly what we want and seeing if it meets the checklist of how to spend God's funds. God buys, in quotes, are a result of a disciplined life of knowing God in his guidelines of spending. So we are in this situation with our van that we're having to put money into it that literally could cover the majority or a good portion of another vehicle if we wanted to get another one. And we're thinking, okay, what about the debt root ratio thing? And, you know, we're having to think this whole thing through. And so I've been very tempted to go online and start hunting for used vans and, you know, it's better than the one we have and start that whole process. And the Lord keeps telling me, put it aside. Now that either means a miracle's coming of some type or there's a no coming. You see? But that's how we're supposed to do it. Just keep setting it aside. And if it's something that's got to be taken care of immediately, like your, your car sitting on the side of the road, then God will step up and show you immediately what needs to be done. But that's hard for us. So the best buy thing really becomes a huge point of whether we're going to be free or not. Can we deny this best buy mentality and see a bomb or something should land on it and terminate it, right? I don't really question the lineage of the Versteg family. Their father lived this way. In fact, much of what I am giving you came from observing him and what he taught me. So it can be done. It is difficult. And it doesn't mean you don't use your credit card. But it's how you use it, when you use it, and whether there will be debt at the other end of using it. Right. But like your father would use a credit card and then pay for it within the 30-day thing, blah, blah, blah. So we'll get into the details of all this later as this whole series unfolds. But... This one is a real tough one. This is what hooks you when you go into the store and they know it. Number two is the worm on the hook. Number one, swindler, is the hook. So now you go into the store, the hook is in place, the worm is on the hook, and they need to get you doing this Best Buy thing. I know how it works. In publishing, as you jack the price up to twenty-seven ninety-five for your book for a new release, and you offer them a fifty percent discount, which is the normal healthy price you get, so that the author gets five dollars and ninety-five cents out of that book, and the publisher can have the rest of the money. I know how it's done. So the same thing they do with new book releases, they're going to do with new lawnmowers. And refrigerators, because it works. 
Numbers are what you make them. Okay, number three is record keeping. God is an accountant. If he records every word that proceeds out of the mouth of man, surely he is recording how we are spending or stewarding his resources. If we are to prosper under the guidelines of heaven, we must be wise in our planning, be diligent in working towards the purchase, and be accurately recording the expenditures of God's bank account. God's bank account. God's bank account. If the master, God, would require an account of his resources, we will be ready to present an accurate account of how we spend our master's investments. And my listener and leader in a foreign country that I've asked you to give me a report of how you've spent your money over this past year is so significant in how we're going to handle you and the ministry we have in your country according to that report. This is where I get it, sir, is point number three. That does not mean we're going to be perfect in the way we spend our money. Every time I go to the store, which is occasional, I don't do this all the time, but when I go to the store and take out a dollar nine, which is ridiculous, you candy bar makers, but a dollar nine and buy my salted nut roll. My most favorite candy bar in the world. Then I get two of them. Because there's a discount. Did I not do this a couple days ago? I knew I was being swindled. I knew I was biting into the hook. But you know, it's okay. Because the candy bar is not sin. But everything taken outside these boundary lines is when it becomes a huge problem for people. So that's why the deal looks good. Say it again. They're counting on what? They're counting on you spending more. They're counting on you spending money you don't have. They don't, they, stay with me in this, they don't want you spending money you do have. They want you spending money you don't have. So, I'm, I'm at a department store. I go up and I lay this, this discount shirt, dress shirt. I have it on this morning. You lay this discount dress shirt on the counter. You're going to pay for it. And what is it they ask you? Do you have one of our credit cards? If you put this on your card, you'll get an additional 15% off. If you use your card, you'll get points toward your next purchase. They don't want you spending cash. Walk up to a car rental place, throw the cash, I've done this, throw the cash on the counter to cover that rental car, and this is the standard of every rental car service in America. Put the cash down to pay for that rental car in cash and they will not accept your cash. Only done on credit card. They don't want your money. They don't want you to be a good steward. They are counting on what you don't have. 
to work for them. Now, if you do a budget analysis on what they're going to get if you use their card, what the banking institution will get, the benefits you get, you lay all of that out and you'll realize after you go and grab the statistics on the percentage of people that actually pay their bill within 30 days. And you'll get it. The money we put toward the lending institution and the department store's percentage is absolutely mind-bending. Your dollar. Number four is lending. Another downfall of many men is lending with interest and co-signing on loans of family and friends. If borrowing money makes us a servant of the leader, then lending money to a family member or friend forces us, forces that one to become our servant. Since we know that the word of God is true, we need to be very careful about making slaves out of our familiar family, loved ones. When we loan, we need to loan under the guideline of not expecting it back. I'm going to read that again, and online listeners, we listen very, very carefully. I know there's a particular church that's actually using our notes in your Sunday school class this morning, and I want you to underline this in your notes. When we loan, we need to loan under the guideline of not expecting it back. So therefore, if I loan someone something I own, the attitude needs to be, you don't have to tell them, I don't want it back. You see, to the one who loans, it's a gift. To the one who's to pay back that loan is an account responsibility. And I'm going to explain that to you. This does not make sense to the average person. They loan and tag interest money on it so they become profitable. And they're not just getting their 50 bucks back. But they're getting their 50 bucks back with 17% interest. So they can get a little profit out of their giving. It's the same thing the IRS is using on your taxes. Give to the church and then write it off on your taxes. Give to get. It's a debt principle that the government has actually tied into us actually writing off our gifts in taxes. You with me? The same principle is what makes credit mentality work. I'll give you 15, 50 bucks, but it's going to be with 17% interest. I don't care if it takes you a year to pay it off. Two years. I don't care. Because 17% every single day is going to make the lender very, very profitable. If our new servant pays us back, we are blessed. If he doesn't, in our eyes, in the eyes of God, we are still free. Loaning money for a profit is not a biblical principle. 
Our world hinges on uh, this lie, and it, and it is what makes our world turn financially, of course. It is also a technique the Antichrist will use to prosper the world's economy, place the people in, in a slave position to him. He will be the banker in uh, the up-and-coming global banking system. God expects us to give to those who are in need. Co-signing and loaning with interest means bondage to the one whom is signed and also potential bondage to the lender. Have you ever gone into a town and there's one particular guy, and this is the way it is in most communities, one particular guy owns the whole town. We have one in this community. He just happens to be a giver. But some communities you go into where the rich man on the block uses this interest thing to keep everyone fearfully in bondage to him. Right? So the whole community kowtows to this one person. It's how most small communities were built, sad to say. That, if you just kind of take that idea, whether you saw it on a television show or you're living in a community where that is the case, if you take that one concept and take it internationally, take it globally, you'll understand that the God of material possessions is who? Satan. To get people leaning on him to pay him back will create bondage. Slavery, servitude. You look at the slave market and you say, well, how come these gals who are so far removed from their pimps, their owners, will not just walk away from it when they have plenty of opportunities? They're afraid they'll be hunted down like animals, not killed tortured. That's what's told to them on the front end. We will hunt you down and torture you and your family no matter where they live. That's what keeps them in bondage. Because they could walk away at one of their jobs. That's how the enemy is going to work. I will hunt you down and put you in prison. I don't care how many new cards you get to pay off the old card. I don't care. But when they stop you, you're going to prison. The goal is prison. Torture. Of course, we laugh or blow this kind of stuff off because it doesn't affect our neighborhood. And we stop looking at the news because it makes us depressed. And we're not reading the headlines every week of exactly what is happening in our world. But I can tell you, the past two weeks in international world news, everyone is saying the world's out of control. We need unity. wonder who will step up for that job. I have a friend, and I won't reveal your name, because you listen to our podcast regularly, but... I have a friend who's a chancellor in the UN. 
And they said, it's not something we fear is coming. It is here. The leader is here among us. He's just not been asked to step up. Domestic. Point number five. Those who discover God's miraculous plan of economy prepare their homes for education, medical recovery, care for the elderly family members, housing, food, and clothing. The patriarchs of the family will uh, spiritually train up his children and grandchildren to be providers for their own homes without going into debt to do it. This will certainly require the leader of the home to become educated on the guidelines of spending according to the Word of God. Okay, let me show you how whacked out we are here in America. We grow up in a home and we train our children to be independent, to be successful, to be able to think on their own, to be able to live without God, to live without to being dependent on a human. And when they turn 18 years of age, that magical age of now you are responsible as an adult, we send them out into the world. They get an apartment while they're out there. They get a good job and hopefully get a good education that the parents go into debt for. And if the parents cut them off and say, I just simply can't even get a loan to get you through school, you'll have to do that on your own. So what happens is the young man goes and gets his own school loans that are now up to $140,000 for a simple education. So we start our children out in debt. Then we have this new thing that's not so new, it started happening 25 years ago, is the college students started getting college-aged credit cards. It's hit them while they're in college. It worked. Now the kids are driving around with cars they're in debt to. They've got school loans. They, got, they graduate from college being in debt a half a million dollars per college student. That's how they're starting their life. Well, they need a home. Have you ever watched television and saw these young couples buying these 4,000 square foot homes and go, how do they do it when, when our parents saved their entire life to buy a house to give to their children who don't want it? Because it's an old-fashioned, old-school house. That's what happened to us. We don't want our parents' home, something they've worked their entire life to pay off. No! We want something new and up-to-date and modern. So now we're up to almost a million dollars of debt before they're 30 years of age. Go online, look at the statistics, they're all there. 30 years of age, a million dollars in debt. What is happening to us? Well, now the old folks, their parents are starting to lose their health. And their parents just happen to be parents that believe that the family is responsible for taking care of them. And they're out there having to pay their own debts off. Because now they're a million dollars in debt in their 40s. 
Remember, the whole system is counting on what you don't have, not what you do have. So the parents come to the children and say, you know, we can't take care of this house anymore. We want to give it over to one of you. But honey, you're going to have to take care of us. No. We got to take care of our own family. See, all this stuff that they have invested in, what it really turns out not to be an investment. It turns out to be this enormous debt upon them. So how in the world do you expect us to take care of you, mom and dad? Go to a nursing home. And that's exactly what they did. The country started putting together nursing homes because the kids didn't want to take care of their parents and grandparents. Hey, you can go rent the movie, Fiddler on the Roof, and see it very easily, very quickly, and that is, in the strict Orthodox Jewish culture, you've committed one of the greatest sins you can commit familiarly, family-wise, is to not take care of your parents and grandparents. You kept them in the same household. That's gone. It's forever gone, they say. In this nation, you'll never see that day again where children take care of their parents. Now, there are going to be families that go, You want to bet? I'm going to take care of my parents. Well, they are very rare cases. But it's gone. So now the parents have got to go into debt to pay insurance to make sure they're taken care of if my spouse dies. It's the game we're playing. That's how you have to do it. The system requires debt to pay debt. Do you understand that? It requires it. And now the whole country is functioning under the system requires debt to pay debt. Your parents are too old. Send them to a nursing home. Visit them once a month if you're a good boy. If you visit them once a year, you're a bad boy. Bring them a gift at Christmas. That's what our country is facing today. Number six, a good name. One of the most difficult principles of financial freedom is choosing a good name rather than great riches. That's out of Proverbs, of course. Scriptures show us that Broken commitments, secret sins, not taking care of widows, dishonoring parents, and taking vengeance, revenge, are just a few of the sins that get in the way of God caring for his children. If a person is of pride, thinks that he can care for his family without the hand of God, he most likely will allow the downfall of such thinking. God would prefer us to put our emphasis on being a, of good reputation and having a good name, one that the generations to follow, you're giving them inheritance first of a good name so that they can follow that good name. You see, when I make the comments about Carl Versteg, my father-in-law, he had a good name to the day he died and he still has a good name. You can go into the community, mention Carl Versteg, and there is a warm, sweet, those who knew him, or the heritage of 
the Versteg lineage. They bear witness to it. And you hear stuff like, he was a good man. No, he still is. His lineage is still a good name. It's still moving forward, and I'm one of them carrying it. You see? It doesn't stop when you die. Number seven is prayer, the principle that continues to be a struggle for me in financial freedom is in knowing how to receive resources from God through prayer. Because it's opposite of the impulse buying. God is pleased when his children call on him for help. Like most humans, when wealth increases or even stabilizes, it becomes easy to, to cease depending on God. This proves our independence and reason for wanting the wealth even from the very start. The answer is, is a dependent prayer life with our Lord, prayer about everything, I mean everything, a habit that challenges me to this very day. And it is changing the older and, quote, wiser that I get is to actually go to God and say, before I talk to my wife, talk to my donors, talk to outreach people, whatever, Lord, what is it you're saying? How do you want this done? What resources do you want to use? Okay, principle number eight, partnerships. The temptation many men struggle with is becoming a partner in ventures to gain prosperity. The reason why this is not biblical is because it places both parties in an, an enslavement to each other. When one falls, they both fall. It is deceptive thinking that ends uh, justifies the means. Even though the technique works well in the lives of the wealthy, the average business and family usually ends up in bankruptcy over unbiblical practices. It would behoove us to review Daniel chapter 1, verse 8. If someone would please look that up so that we can uh, read that out. Partnerships is great to have, but when you integrate the identity and the lives of each partner, which is usually what has to happen when you have this mutual financial gain connected to the partnership. That's what's dangerous. That's what we're warned of in, in the Bible. But since most young entrepreneurs cannot afford to start their business on their own, this is a very common practice. They form partnerships to purchase things, which ultimately leads to destruction. Someone have the passage for us. But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Okay, so what's the big deal? It's just fine food. But see, now when he approaches the king and he is set apart from the king... He could literally, if in fact, when you walk 
into these scriptures a little further, you'll see it. Daniel was able to separate himself from the identity of the king, ultimately leading to the king giving him blessing. Okay? But he had to separate himself from the identity of the king, and that is indulgence in his food. Okay? That's the principle in front of us. Principle number nine is laziness. Kids, listen to this very carefully because it is when you're a child that this starts. There is no other way to label those who invest in getting rich quick schemes. Attempting to live and prosper without working for it is viewed by God as slothful workmen or workmanship. And he places the discipline on man to work by the sweat of his brow. Of course, that's out of Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. And this is what he expects from all men and women. Unless it is an inheritance or gift, anything short of this is strongly classified by God as irresponsible living. Over the years of being in ministry, I have had countless offers to join multi-level marketing firms. And in every case, God has led me back to Luke chapter 12, verse 19. If someone would please look that up. But the impulse of, of, of getting your needs met instantly is what typically we pass down to our children and particularly children of smaller families. The smaller the family, the greater the temptation to spoil the child. Spoiling the child, in other words, meeting their needs before they work for it, actually produces a slothful or lazy child. How could that be? Why would this happen? And you look at an entire culture today as labeled by the world as lazy. And then the enemy takes lazy. Please stay with me on this, particularly you young college kids. Laziness is turned into a fashion. So when you wake up in the morning and you have messy hair and they turn it into a fashion statement, it becomes culturally acceptable and they're cool for being lazy. You remember when the ripped jeans was in fashion? Anything that Satan can see go against God's standard of living, he's going to turn it into a fashion. So whether it's the ripped jeans, whether it's the hair, whether it's the holes in the shirt, whether, whatever it is, the, he has to turn it into a fashion. So when the youth get up in the morning and they look in the mirror, they're going, cool, awesome. And the whole holy attire thing is gone. Laziness is one of the most prosperous venues in America. Go look at clothing, fashions, 
go look at the way things are produced. Do you know what postmodern art is? It's pointless. That's the first thing Webster Dictionary will tell you. It's pointless. It literally does not have a point. It goes wherever. The art goes wherever. There's no point to it. There's no congruent thinking, processing, conclusion. But they're, so but they're so talented. You walk into some galleries and you go, Really? $150,000? Really? It's a ball with a line through it. Really? That's how it works. Do you understand that? That's why old art is worth millions and millions of dollars when they actually painted people walking through a flower garden. That's all gone. There's a few that hang on to it, but it's all gone. Now the kids are drawing demons and dark images and dark shapes and dark, 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 and they call it what? Art form. Gothic art form. It's demonic. It's evil. And it's dark. And it sponsors the enemy. The kid's lazy. And he's yielding his mind to a dark world. And the parents don't even know it. And they indulge him. And they go, well, that's cool. What, are you afraid to reject the child? It's evil. It's demonic. It supports the devil. Is this what you want, son? Satan is lazy. He's dishonorable. And he refuses order. And that's what's happening in our world with our youth today. It's all art. It's all acceptable. It's all beautiful. It's the expression of the child. Really? That ball in line, really? Someone tell me here, and guy says, back up a little bit. What do you see? This happened to me in Washington, D.C. Well, back up a little bit. Really? What is it? Well, what do you think it is? Oh, you want my interpretation of this art? Yeah, what, what do you see? A ball with a line through it. They're insulted. See, art is for the purpose of getting your interpretation of it, and that's what's happened to the church. Postmodernism in the church today is what created the demonic illusion of Laodicea, lukewarm. And it is an illusion. Principle number 10, listening to our wives. For many of us who are married, listening to our wives, not obeying them, there's a difference, can be one of our greatest challenges. Many domestic financial disasters are a result of not paying close attention to our wives' instinct. Our wives function much like the Holy Spirit. They have an uncanny ability to discern what is not wise for family welfare. She is our one flesh and we as men cannot function without our helpmate or our helmet unless we are in full dependence on God. 
God gave her to us to complete us, even in our financial decisions. I know this is not going to be a shocker to you, but this is the most common reason for divorce in America. The man is out spending money, secret accounts, blah, blah, blah. She finds out about it, gets upset. No matter how wealthy you are, see, the issues are the same. No matter if you're wealthy, 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 or you're trying to find out where you're going to get your food for your next meal. It's the same. Listen to your wives, guys, because they, they, they sense, they see, they, they intuitively know without even looking at the numbers yet. And that's hard for a lot of guys because they think they're submitting to the little woman. When in reality, you're co-heirs of the grace of God, 50-50 in the grace of God. It's just that your roles here on earth are bit, a bit different. It doesn't mean you ignore the counsel and guidance and direction. It means you want it for the decision-making process. True financial freedom comes to a household when the patriarch knows how to pass on spiritual, relational, and financial heritage. God gave us the principle of inheritance in order to pass the truth, capital T, of his kingdom into all areas entrusted to man. From what we can discover in the word, his purpose of inheritance is to strengthen family life and multiply the investments made by the previous generation. And that's why our identity statement is so critical, because identity in finances is for the strict purpose of honoring God, manifesting His ways of stewardship, and helping the next generation to start out life without debt. Not train your children up in a debt mentality. Now I'm going to close with this illustration. Particularly you kids listen very carefully. If your parents are using an, a behavior modification by objects to motivate you, you will be in debt as a young adult. You will without question. If you don't, it will be a miracle of God. If your parents are motivating you through objects, honey, if you clean your room, you can go to the ice cream store and buy an ice cream. Honey, if you sweep the floor, you can have that cookie that's on the counter. Honey, if, you, if, you're, you, if your parents are using objects to motivate you, you will be in debt before you're 25. You will develop in your mind this whole goal and arena to get the cookie. You will want the latest phone the latest TV, the latest cookie, the latest woman, the latest... You see, it will develop in you. You must have this object now. Because the flesh is never satisfied. I knew and know that I've just blown off the majority of the parents that are out there that are listening to this podcast and I just lost you because it's too much for you to think about not motivating your children 
with the God of externals. His name is Satan. You are not motivating your children with the God of the universe who says give, work before you eat. A man is worthy of his wages. You're you're not serving the right God training up your children to get what they want. And I can mention a couple billionaires who don't think like that with their own family and they have billions of dollars set aside just in their savings accounts who make their children work for their breakfast. How in the world is that young man going to run a billion dollar corporation if he doesn't get the concept and principle of you work first and eat second? Then I'll buy you clothes. How, how's he going to get that? So what's happening globally is this didactic problem of extreme poverty and extreme wealth. Is it not? So you have the extreme poverty looking at certain cultures of the extreme wealth and they just expect you to send money. I have an automatic reply on my emails when emails come in from foreign countries that immediately send them an automatic email that says, we will not send you money. Automatically. Because they're contacting this wealthy ministry in Sterling, Kansas, expecting us to take care of them financially. Because we live in America. And then if they reply with, I'm not contacting you for money, they get my personal contact. I'll say, well, what do you want then? We want you to train our people. Oh, we can do that. Which is in the first email, by the way. But we will give you this. You see? Two streams. Liar, liar, pants on fire. Liar, liar, pants on fire. And the truth is we need to come to a healthy, middle of the road, true reality expected life through Jesus Christ. And that is to understand the balance of poverty and wealth. Paul said, for I have learned to abase and abound. Two extremes. When you have a parent raising a child that shows the child what that looks like to to be like that, you will train that child up to be wealthy in probably more ways than one. So Proverbs 13.22 states, A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. Also in Proverbs 20.21 it says, An inheritance gained hurriedly at the beginning will not be blessed in the end. What does that mean? Prodigal son. Kid walking up his dad and saying, give me my inheritance. Hurriedly. Come on. Get to the safe. Dig it out under the rock. Wherever you got it. Give me, give me, give me. And the father does, right? Gives him his inheritance. But what does he say? 
This is it, son. Don't come back to this pocket again. Because what you get today will end today. Well, the kid didn't get it. He just saw his dad as wealthy. He wanted his, his, his portion. His father gave him the portion. He went out there and, of course, he spent it on proper investments, right? No, he spent it on prostitutes and, you know, life of, of, of sin and finally ended up eating with pigs. Remember the story? And he realized that, you know, living with my father as a worker is better than eating with these pigs. So he goes and approaches his father's ranch and his father's been waiting for him and watching for him and, you know, it didn't let him into the house. His father met him on the edge of the property and they have this whole discussion and his father didn't even get to speak to find out if his son's heart had changed or not. The son just said, I have thought this through and I have come to realize that I have sinned against my heavenly father and my earthly father. I would rather be a worker, a slave is how it translates out, a slave to my father than to, to live like the way I have been living. And of course the Father extends forgiveness. That's Jesus' point. Receives him into his bosom. Gives him the, the family ring, which is huge. And also gives him the family robe, which is huge. But he says, son, I'm afraid you're going to have to work for your brother. For wages. And of course the son said, well, I'm done with you. No, he worked for his brother. That's a responsible God. He didn't fudge because there was forgiveness. He didn't fudge because his son was Laodicean. He didn't fudge because he wanted to indulge his son, because I'm sure the father had plenty of resources. He just kept to the rules of growing that young man and holding his repentance intact through, now you're going to work. That's a New Testament parable. It's a parable out of Jesus' mouth. It's the parable of what it means extending forgiveness while you're going to work for your food. You decide if it's a responsible way of living after you receive forgiveness. For many of us, we may not be able to leave a boatload of cash, but we can teach our children's children how to manage the inheritance of God's resources, whatever that might be. This resource has been presented by the Counseling and Conference Services of IOM America. For more information about our ministries, visit us online at iomamerica.org. That's iomamerica.org.